Engage and Equip, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Hannah. I'm on staff here at High Point Church, and today I'm joined by our lead pastor, Nick Gibson. Hey, guys. (laughs) Today we'll be covering some AMA questions, AMA meaning Ask Me Anything, that were sent in related to recent sermons, as well as some questions that listeners emailed us about previous episodes. And we'll also be... uh, Nick will expand on some content that he couldn't cover from his most recent sermon as well. So let's dive in. First question that we have from December 5th sermon, most recent. Someone asks, why did God send an angel to warn Joseph, but not the other parents? Yeah, so this is in reference to the narrative in Matthew's gospel about how Herod is upset that a a child who's going to be the king of the Jews is born. And he's going to kill he wants to kill the child in the region of Bethlehem and so God sends an angel to warn Joseph in a dream to leave and go to Egypt and doesn't apparently apparently doesn't so uh, to the others and so some children these children are killed are called sometimes in church history the holy innocents quite um, a large number <laughs> yeah so people have argued about this whether this is a few dozen children mm-hmm. or it's a large number because Bethlehem is not a highly populated sure. region and the number of kids the average woman of childbearing age is going to have a child about every two years in this kind of a context so like people have tried to do the math to figure out what is this is this 14 kids is this 260 is it you know and nobody really knows i don't think mm-hmm. um and they also don't know like how effective the soldiers were or if other some families got away were able to hide their children whatever nobody really knows that stuff anyway children were killed right and god knew who those children would be mm-hmm. um i think one of the things that this really gets at is the question of because you can this is a one of those questions that like it proves too much not too little right so if god should have done that he, he you could argue that he should have warned everyone forever at every time there's ever been something really bad like this that happened and god doesn't and i, I think that the answer here is is that god intervened to move forward salvation history um jesus has to live to save all humans including the ones who are killed here and all others, and that which isn't fundamentally part of salvation history in this way, he doesn't seem to take that kind of action for all the time. Why he does in some cases, not others, is not something I'm privy to. Right. So I can only speculate, and I fear that my speculate my speculations may only confuse people further. Right. I mean, the obvious sort of underlying question is about his character and his goodness and why he would choose not to, well... First of all, we don't know whether he did or not. It's not recorded. Right. We're assuming that he didn't. And that's based on human history. That's a reasonable assumption. Yeah, that, and the assumption in the text that some children were killed. Right. Right. So, I mean, is there anything in 30 seconds that you can say regarding the question of God's character and choosing not to do so in this case? No. No. I, 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 one of the things I try to impress upon people when possible is just that we don't understand if sovereignty doesn't mean you can do anything at all, but that you can only do things that are logically possible, which is why we believe God isn't both good and evil at the same time. We believe he's good. And that means he's not evil because it's not logically possible to be both good and evil in the same way at the same time. 
right? Doing the same thing. So similarly, what that means is that even though God is omnipotent, that is all powerful, it doesn't mean that God can make a square circle or something like that. And so we don't, so therefore every action God takes has certain counterfactual effects, like things that happen, a, a line of things that happen that God knows what they're going to be. And so God is making choices between possible futures relative to his actions. He can't just say, you can't just say, let me make up a future in which everything's perfect and then say, God should have done everything to make that future happen. That's not the way even an omnipotent being interacts with reality. Mm-hmm. If he, if he doesn't meticulously force the actions of everything in that reality, which he doesn't, according to how the Bible portrays his, the way he governs the world. That is, he gives freedom, especially to his image bearers, human beings. So, so yeah, I, I think, I don't know the answer. I, I think what, what, when God doesn't do something that we wished he would, if we, if we understand it morally correctly, which we often don't, it's because of the counterfactual choices God had to make, this was the least bad one, giving all, given all the bad things humans are going to choose to do. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know more than that. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot more could be said and has been said on the question, but it's not something we can resolve right now. Um, and I think in some, in some ways, one of the issues where the more you say, the less you say. Like the less, yeah. The, the more you presume on the topic, the less helpful it, it can be. Yeah, there is no logical answer that makes the death of a child not horrible. Right. Right. And and I don't I don't want to try to make somebody feel less about the death of a child because I can explain it rationally. I think God can, I think God can defend Himself in all these ways, and yet Him He is Himself still horrified at the death of a child, mm-hmm. and Him and He also grieves over it. And, and I think that people want simplistic answers that don't exist in a world that is under a curse. Thank you for that. Uh, next question. How can you help a person who turned away from God during different difficult times? Yeah, there's, there's a couple ways to go at that. Um, one, one is, is that I try to teach people pretty regularly that very difficult times tend to put people in an altered state of consciousness that tends to feel clearer rather than less clear than their normal state of consciousness. This is true. about This is just a fundamental fact about human beings that most people don't know that when you get very scared or when you get very angry or when you feel very threatened, your the way your mind works is that the part of your brain that feels things takes over and makes decisions for you unless your mind is extremely disciplined not to allow that effect to happen because you know it's going to happen. And so what happens is uh, you st- you think a thought that feels 100% rational that is coming from a part of your brain that cannot produce rational thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the, the whole purpose of that is for it to deceive and override your normal conscious thinking. And so what happens when people are in hard times or just like any overwhelming time you start having thoughts that you think are rational that feel a hundred percent rational, hundred percent crystal clear. And they, they just aren't. And if people can see that sometimes they can begin to undo some of the presumptions that they made where they go, Oh, when my mom died, I finally really saw that God doesn't care. And it's like, no, when your mom died, you, because of your grief went into like an altered state of consciousness where a simple world in which God either does or doesn't exist because he either did or didn't save your mother is all that matters. And in that simplistic world, you're allowed to find the resolution of peace 
which allows you just disbelieve in God, but to give you peace of mind in saying, okay, I can live in a simple enough world that I can make sense of. So sometimes I find that like trying to just help people get acquainted with what it means to be a human being with a nervous system and to try to like deal with post-stress, post-anger realities and all the fear of not knowing what's going on um, in which actual faith in the God who you can't control really can help you is really helpful. I, I also think just trying to like sometimes just taking people through your own hard times and how much you wanted to go in that direction and how you thought it through or how you prayed it through. I also think that um, you can ask people like, when do you think you were in your right mind? Hmm. Like now or like all the deliberative moments of your life. Right. And the reason why that matters is that you, you could have clarity in rejecting God, but what you can't have is clarity in rejecting God and the mysterious peace, the complicated God gives if you believe in him when you don't have answers. And sometimes people just, they their mind doesn't think about that. They don't go, okay, so I can either say I can make sense of this tragedy that's happening in my life because I can throw away the idea that God exists and I can be like, okay, this is, this is clear. It's simple. Right. Or I can say, no, I was in my right mind before when I believed in God. And if I trust in him now, I can have the mysterious comfort that comes from trusting a person while not having situational answers. Mm -hmm. And what I've found is, is that the latter is not only more rational in the long term, but way more helpful in the short term. What I, I, also, I would also say this, that like, even if people like turn their back on God, at least temporary, dur temporarily during hard times, just encouraging them as a believer to, to do, um, th like things that help people engage with grief, like grief care classes and grief counseling, stuff like that. Sometimes that can be just really helpful. And I know some Christians are afraid to send people to counselors because sometimes counselors are not very religiously positive. And that is true, but some counselors that is. Um, but I think that sometimes when people start to get over their grief, they can begin to realize they, they were in an altered state of consciousness. I remember my, when my dad died, my mom was in basically an altered state of consciousness for like three years. And when she came out of it, she realized she had been in an altered state of consciousness for like a really long time. And stuff that she realized that stuff that she said, stuff that she thought was just nonsense. And most of it was because she was thinking too simplistically about things. So like people, one example I, I give sometimes is when people lose somebody and people come to comfort them, they'll say something like, you know, your husband just didn't deserve to die, which is like per a perfectly rational statement. And yet the grieving mind can concoct a way in which that's an incredibly offensive thing to say, right? Of course he didn't, right? Like, that's so stupid. You're so stupid, right? And so like, I saw this, like, like even my dad's wake, like my mom, like was like taking offense at people and no matter what they'd say other than I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. Right. No matter what they would say, like you had, like you had, I'm, you had a, a good, a good long marriage with Edwin. Right. Cause they were married for like 35 years, mm -hmm. which is true. And that in, in a lot of people don't get that. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet, so what this 19 year old idiot didn't have to kill my father. It would be by being a reckless driver. Right. right. And so what I tried to tell her in the moment was just like, just don't show your anger at these people and don't rebuke them. Even though it makes you feel good because in two months or two years, you're going to realize they were just trying to help. They didn't know what to say. What they said was perfectly rational 
from 15 perspectives, but you chose the one from which it was offensive because she's an altered state of consciousness. And my mom's pretty rational usually. So I, I think if you like try to understand the complexity of that a little bit, you sometimes can help people see that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you can't, at least until they come out of their grieving or whatever. Yeah. I think what's helpful about that is um, typically what they don't need is an argument about theology at, at that point in time. It's usually yeah. not a theological issue that they need to analyze. Yeah, um, I agree. And yeah. So one way to think about this is this, like, have you heard people say this? Um, people don't care about your reasons for the faith or your apologetics, what they care, but they can't argue with your testimony. Have you sure. ever heard people say that? And like, you know, that that annoys the heck out of me when people say that, cause it's right. totally false. First of all, people <laughs> can be like, well, that's good for you. That's your truth. That's from your experience. What they mean is like, you're in your own little psychological world. And that makes right. sense to you. After the psychologizing of America, at least in the last 20 years, that's certainly not true anymore. Right? So, I think the question you have to ask yourself is, is the, where is this person coming from mentally? Mm -hmm. If this person is coming from an emotionally reactive place, rational arguments don't make any sense to them. They just don't work. Um, They will use all of their intellect to say what you're saying stupid in their own minds. They'll either say it out loud or not, but that's what they're doing. And if they're in a rational place, then rational arguments are are fine, Mm -hmm. you know? And I found that if you don't deliberate between the two of those things, people talk about this in conflict theory, like in business, where like if somebody comes to you and they're like yelling at you, don't explain to them why they're wrong. Just like assure them that you've listened to them, repeat their argument back to them, like in perfection, showing that you have taken very seriously what they've said and you've listened to everything they've said, and then assure them that you care about them and what they're saying and the experience that they had. And don't explain your side of it. Right. And that, that works really well (laughs) as somebody who's done that many, many times before I knew that was a principle, just naturally trying to care about people. But just like, I also want to like tell people why they're wrong and to make does no good. Right. Two weeks later, they'll come back sure, and they'll be like, we had this conversation. You said this, I was really glad you listened. And then I'll be like, are you in a place now where you can you want to hear my perspective? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I think I do. And then it's like, they really can hear it. Right. Mm-hmm. Both because they're in a different state of mind now, but also because I listened to them then. Right. So I do think that's, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next question we have is related to this, I, this issue of um, people turning away from God during difficult times. Um, but the person brings out sort of a historical perspective, looking at the history of the church during the Novation and Donatist controversies, where you had people denying the faith or burning scripture, things like that. Um, and then people would want to come back into the church uh, at a later point. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of controversy about, can they come back in? Under what terms can they be reaccepted into the church? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you have to a little church history to even yeah. ask that question. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the, the, a couple times church history, the innovation controversy is what I know, is what I know the most about, where... You had a persecution. The Romans were like burning people alive and killing Christians. And you could escape that by either burning a Bible, if you had one, by offering incense in allegiance to Caesar as God, right? Or recanting Christian faith or all three. And then after the persecution ended, right, some of these people wanted to come back into the church. Meanwhile, there's other people in the church whose mother was killed or father was killed. Mm-hmm. And people were like, these people can't come back. They they denied Jesus before men, he's going to deny them before his father in heaven. It literally says in the Bible, right? Um, and the conclusion of the Orthodox church, which is why there was a novation church for a while was no, they can come back. If out of weakness and infirmity, they were unable to stand up to persecution. 
and they're repentant of it and wish to come back to Christ, they can. Mm-hmm. Because, and the, the idea was is that these things are, are amount to torture, right? And that, and that a lot of people are just not going to be able to stand up under it. So re- relative to that, in terms of the HPC elders preparing for persecution is, is the context right, of the question. The person's question is, how are the HPC elders, including pastors, preparing for persecution? So Yeah, a, a couple of ways. Um, though I wouldn't say that we are doing that actively. Um, we're trying to cope with what's existing right now. But I think the person is, is talking about that fourth level of persecution I discussed in my sermon, which was like active active persecution in which that was, was there's a personal attack of plundering of possessions and harming people's bodies i think we're trying to become the kind of people who can take it first of all right. but also i think that we i think we have straight in our theology that if there were to be some kind of persecution like that and then that persecution were to end um i i'm very much in the orthodox tradition where you accept people back you know i don't think for me that's not a controversy that controversy got handled in a much worse persecution in the second century second and third century so I, I would say in terms of preparing for that, like you and your husband read um, Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher mm-hmm. last year, which is about how to prepare for serving Jesus in the midst of totalitarian persecution and how to grow the church and prepare for it and even pre- prepare for things like interrogations mm-hmm. um, and lessons that came from the, ch- the Eastern European church while under communism. And so trying to consider those and like they use certain kinds of small group ministries and certain kinds of ways of being discreet and they had their own printing presses and all kinds of stuff. Um, I mean, we read that stuff and I've, I'm, I've been contemplating some of those dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For those of you listening there, there are two podcasts probably relevant to that. Um, one Nick interviewed, um, uh, Vasily Barbier, mm-hmm. uh, about his experience under the iron curtain. And yeah. then, yeah, there's an episode where Nick and I and my husband talk about, um, totalitarianism. Yeah. Because, because Sung Young, um, your husband specifically talked about like stuff he's seeing in South Korea and how right. South Korea has been bending towards, mm-hmm. um, appeasing China and in doing so acting more authoritarianly in South Korea mm-hmm. and how that's kind of terrifying. And then if you can see it there it, and then you try to like, kind of look at it here, you're kind of like, Oh, there are ways in which we're kind of like just bending in that direction. And you just never know when that bending will be sufficiently, um, substantial that it's going to flip people. Cause like e- even in terms of novationism, like people let people recanted when they were like going to be killed. Right. Mm-hmm. But in, in lesser forms of persecution, people recant all the time. Right. Like we actually, you and I were in a prayer meeting today where there was a young woman saying, I'm just now coming to terms with the emotional damage done to me in our public school system mm-hmm. by how I was treated as a Christian. Right. Essentially admitting that there was like some level of traumatic effect where she was having emotional responses. She didn't, plan to have because of the pressure put on her right. to answer questions that were completely over her head at her age and put on her by teachers that were adults when she was a kid and asked with a, an attitude of hostility right in front of her peers right and like she's a pretty kind-hearted sweet person and like i, I don't think those teachers if you pulled them aside now would you we, they, we, would you say this girl you persecuted her do you realize that you persecuted her in front of her peers asking her age inappropriate questions, using the arm of the state to bully her into recanting from her faith. Um, and you did that to her and she has, you harmed her. You didn't just hurt her, but you harmed her over the long term. She bears the harm today and that's your fault. You persecuted her. They would say, Oh no, no, no. Right. But they did, you know? And so, um, there's, and I know teenagers that have walked away from the faith 
because they have been so influenced by that kind of pressure, not persuasion, so as to walk away from the church. And if they come back someday, I'm not going to say to them, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you can't come back to the Christian church. Mm -hmm. We're going to receive them back. And we'll do that too if people did the same thing under knives and burning rods, you know. At the risk of an aside, have you, Nick, have you ever, ever read the book Silence? by mm-hmm. Shusaku Endo. It's a novel by Roman Catholic author, but um, wrestles a lot with this question. One of the main characters is this um, Japanese Christian who repeatedly throughout the novel, it's during the period of persecution of Christians in Japan. Mm-hmm. and he Which re- was incredibly vicious. It was, inc- it was. And he recants and betrays the Christian priests, etc., multiple times throughout the novel and always comes back um, as this really tortured figure. Um and it's really a fascinating sort of examination of what we do under persecution and what it what it's like for those who give in mm-hmm. and survive yeah. and how they live with themselves afterwards and yeah. how God sees them and things like that. It's a, one of the really interesting parts of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, is when he talks about who is unbreakable and who isn't mm. in the gulags. And he'll talk about like a 70 year old woman who's just like unbreakable. They just can't break her. And then other people who are like, you know, bosses and like people who have like, like they rule over people and they're, they're considered highly strong, quote, strong people. And they just fold Mm -hmm. the moment the, the, Hey, sign this. And you'll only get 10 years and put five of your neighbor's names down, eat whether, whether they are guilty or not, you know, and they just write down the names, they sign the thing. And they go off to serve their time because they're afraid of what else could be done to them. You know, they're sick of being put in the little closet filled with flesh eating maggots, you know, and they just, they just fold, you know, and I'd love to believe that I would be like that woman. Mm. And I don't, I don't know that's true. Right. So going back to the question is how are we preparing is trying and striving to become like that 70 year old woman. Yeah. Um, And yeah. Part of it is just like where I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to re, I need to go to my house and look at all my possessions Hmm. and say to myself, these are all going to be gone. Hmm. I'm going to lose all of this. Mm -hmm. State might take it. I might just become marginalized by the state so I can't work so that I just go bankrupt Mm -hmm. and I lose it all. I mean, there's lots of ways to lose everything, Um, but I'm going to lose everything and I need to be mentally prepared so it doesn't destroy me. Like it'll all, it'll still hurt me, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to destroy me. They may brainwash one or more of my children away from me. That's, that could happen, right? I need to know that that could happen mm-hmm. and so on. And I, it's like, I need to, part of it is just mentally preparing beforehand, changing my expectations. Like, like I'm not, I'm not guaranteed a good life. God never guaranteed me a good life. He guaranteed me a life in the way of the cross with the main benefit that I'll get to be like Jesus. I'll get to die. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's my promise. So that's, I like, if I, I have to believe that. Yeah. And if I believe that when it happens, I can say, oh, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And if I can't, then I won't be. Yeah. And I think that that's actually, I mean, that's not that, you know, that's both our preparation for persecution and our, our one chance at mental health. <laughs> there's this, there's this, um, there's this musician I like right now His I forget his name right now. I forget his name, but he writes these like kind of like Appalachia kind of like folk stuff. And he wrote a song called anxiety and he's like, anxiety, you're always destroying my life. Cause I never feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You no, know, even like in the, in like I'm laying next to my lover who I love and mm-hmm. she loves me. It's like exactly where I'm supposed to be. And I feel like I'm not supposed to like, 
Every, I'm going to lose everything. This is all going to fall apart. And the answer is it all could. Yeah. You have to, you have to believe that like the only thing that can't fall apart is that you're in the hands of God mm-hmm. and that's it. And if you mentally prepare yourself to survive torture, you can survive anxiety too. Yeah. This wasn't in the context of persecution, but it reminds me of something a friend of mine wrote recently, thinking about this feeling of scarcity, even with like our economic condition right now and mm. the things just feel really unstable in the world. And she was just realizing what a toll this was taking on her physically yeah. and mentally. And she was just exhausted and anxious. And she was talking with God about this and she just felt like his word for her was there will be less and it will be okay. Mm-hmm. There will be less and it, it will be enough. Um, yeah. and trying to, um, remember that. And like you said, um, just mentally change your focus and your way of looking at things and really just bring it back to the gospel Yeah, and I mean, what God really does this, promise. Give us this day our daily bread Right, is the prayer. Right. right. And, Paul says to Timothy, if you have food and clothing, you can be content with that. You right. should be content with it. And so yeah. finding the freedom from anxiety mm-hmm. in that, um, yeah. a lot more we could say, I want to keep talking about that, but we have a lot more questions to do. And before we get to questions about previous sermons, uh, Nick, there was some other content that you wanted to cover that you couldn't get to on Sunday. So why don't you yeah, take I th- us I think there? That, I think that um, I wanted to leave people with a strong sense of that, like the levels of persecution thing. Mm-hmm. We talked about this on Sunday, but I talked about how there's like, there's separation emotional or social exclusion, which is which is the first and like lightest step of persecution. But, but that can be highly consequential on people, especially if they have sensitive temperaments. Mm-hmm. And it's also very detrimental for people like under say 25 years old. Right. So ages like seven to maybe 22, 23 of people become emotionally independent after that. Like there's a certain kind of like, you're looking for profoundly for the affirmation of others. And if as a Christian, you're, you're not accepted, it's incredibly detrimental. This is why schools not being religiously neutral is so absolutely detrimental to children's health and well-being. Um, then secondly, is caricature where people have separated from you and now they feel free to like slander you and focus on the thing they don't like about you. Think social media and cable news. And then there is marginalization and repression where people are doing things to keep you from advancing, right? They're, they're doing stuff to hold you back so there's no growth so that their movement can outgrow your movement and ultimately dominate it, right? And I would argue that in certain ways in Madison, that's where things are right now. Um, and then the fourth is oppression or attack. It's, it's direct oppression. It's seeking to like plunder other people's possessions, take control of their bodies in a form of, of active or passive slavery, or I should say total slavery or partial slavery. Um, that would be in prison, imprisoning them unjustly. It'd also be stealing their labor. It would be plundering their possessions because they've exchanged their life for the productivity they've used to gain those goods, etc. Right. And it's, um, like making Christianity illegal, or I would say that like China, Iran, places like that have engaged in this kind of behavior. Um, China's is like somewhere between very heavy marginalization and outright oppression. So with Uyghurs, it's clearly oppression and oppression and attack with some other folks that they haven't started focusing on yet. It's just high levels of marginalization and repression. Right. And it depends locally, you know, by, Mm -hmm. by district, by who's in charge, et cetera. Right. Absolutely. It's a big country. The emperor's far away. Yes. But less, but less, less far than, less far than it used to be. everything now. Yeah. So I, I think that, um, and then secondly, I, I was, I want to talk about um, persecution preparedness. So one of the things I said in my sermon was, and I didn't get time to spend on this in, in either one, is that um, when you recognize that persecution is assured, um, there's three mentalities that can affect you. You can either be, A, you can have a persecution complex, 
which is this idea that like um, everybody has, has it out for me. Right. And so you see persecution everywhere and that can make you kind of a whiner and it can make you um, like full of paranoias of various kinds and so on. And so it's hard to love your neighbor. It's hard to love your enemy because you're constantly like concocting in your mind, all these ways that people are against you, even when they're not consciously against you and maybe not even really much against you, even passively and unconsciously. And then secondly is what I would call just a victim mentality, which we're, we're fairly familiar with that idea, which is the idea that um, I can't accomplish anything. I can't do what I need to do because of the things that are against me. And the victim mentality is kind of the opposite of Christian faith, which is everything is going to be against you and you can obey the Lord. You can be everything you are meant to be absolutely in the midst of everyone being against you. And so I think that a victim mentality is like as far from a Christian possibility as is possible. And so I think we need to recognize that I like, I need to recognize that I can be torn from my family. Everything can be taken away from me. I can be thrown in a cell with two people who are dying and I can be exactly where I'm supposed to be. And I can be exactly who I'm supposed to be. Right. There's in Roger's book, there's this story where he tells about like these eight or nine guys being thrown in a cell and one of them's dying of tuberculosis. And he said, and one of them says it was one of the sweetest times in our lives because we knew God in God's providence, we had nothing to do, but love this man who was dying. And so that's what we did. And so that's not what most imprisoned people think. And, but it is what Christians are supposed to think. So I think, and so I think um, understanding that then you can get to something like persecution preparedness or persecution expectation where you can say, this is going to happen. I'm going to be mentally ready for it, both emotionally ready that is, it's not going to surprise me. It's not going to shock me or devastate me because it's so against my expectations. And I'm going to be ready for it in terms of my character, in terms of the sort of muscle memory of my being. I'm going to be ready to be a disciplined person. I'm going to be ready to not be reactive. I'm going to, I'm going to try to build a character that's ready for this. And some people would say, that's just so parent. That's, that's still, that's paranoia. Like, why would you prepare for something that hopefully will never happen? Well, A, it will happen. Scripture absolutely says that in some form, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution will always come for those who advocate for righteousness in all areas of life from somebody who has a stake in unrighteousness, right? Even if it's not the whole society. But then secondly, preparing to be a martyr prepares you for everything else. That's one of the things that Christians just have to get through their minds. Being prepared to be eaten by the lion prepares you for every other test of your godliness. And so I believe that preparing to be a martyr will help me with my wife when we have a quarrel mm-hmm. and to listen to my kids when they are not behaving the way I want to mm-hmm. them to, or whatever to deal with difficult people or to deal with difficult times. So I, I think nothing is ever wasted when you prepare your heart and soul and mind for struggle because mm-hmm. it comes, it's part of human life. Right. That makes me think of like, you know, there are, on Sunday, you talked about those really clear defining moments of like, will you deny him and live mm-hmm. or will you die? And in some ways, those moments are easier mm-hmm. than the slow sliding moments of like, well, this is kind of a gray area. I'm like, I have a lot at stake here. Uh, it's not that important. I'll just X, Y, Z. But I think that mentality that you're describing helps prepare us for those sort of more gray moments where like for you to see them that way. Right. Wait, this is that like if I, if I make fun of this kid in front of these other kids, I'm saying 
my identity is the world, mm-hmm. not Jesus. Right. And like, if you can, if you can see the starkness of I'm Christ's, I'm not Christ's in the moment of persecution, you can see it in like, I mean, I have moments at home where I'm like, okay, if I sit here and watch TV for two more hours, I like, it's very subtle and it's very oblique, right. but it's still like me not being Christ's because I actually know that's not what I should be doing with my time right now. I've sat down, I've, I've relaxed for a little bit. I've watched something and I slept through half of it. I mean, I've, I've used leisure as rest and now it's time for me to re-engage with something meaningful as opposed to me just not thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think that, I mean, I think that that's the way Christians end up looking at their life, you know, and it, it sometimes it's the only way you could find the self-control to do what you ought. Just seeing that those little moments matter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think Jesus intentionally tries to build up this kind of mentality in us of like, preparation, like knowing what we're prepared for. So like Matthew 5, 10 to 16 says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do you light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead you put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works or good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Like we normally quote those verses separately, right? but they're all together. It's, it's, all, it's a discourse on being blessed because you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Mm-hmm. And um, Matthew 10, 23 to 39 is, 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 a very, is very similar. It's like Jesus talking about like, you know, they're not going to treat you better than me. Mm-hmm. And if you're mine, you're going to be treated like me and you should rejoice in being treated by like me because it means we're the same. And I think that those kinds of like, the the Romans called Christians pessimists, right? They thought that we were pessimistic because we believed in, we were all going to die. We believed that like we would be persecuted and we believed that human beings were inherently wicked unless redeemed and they received a new heart and so on. And they were like, you guys are just terrible pessimists, but Many humans have seen over the course of life that by understanding the tragic nature of life properly and then finding hope is the greatest path to happiness. I saw something just recently that those people who are thankful, ritually thankful, has been like, I mean, obviously this gets studied like every four years that like people who are thankful are the happiest people. Okay. Well, thankfulness assumes a certain setting of your expectations. Mm-hmm. You know it I mean? could have been otherwise. Yeah, life is and tragic. And it often is. Right. But in this case, it wasn't, and I'm grateful. Right, exactly, right. So you're like, life is tragic. It could have been otherwise, right? And it was good. And this is, that's great. Right. You know? I made it home safely right. through the belt line today. It could have been otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm so grateful that I'm home with my yeah. family tonight. Yeah, a couple podcasts ago, when we were interviewing the DeYoungs, he said one of their family mottos was that mm-hmm. when they would all be together, he would say, God, thank you for letting us be together one more time. Mm-hmm. Because the assumption was, we might never get to do this again, but we got to do it one more time. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing, that kind of contextualized thankfulness is critical. So anyway, I think that's, that's enough for the, Great. for the cutting room floor stuff. Yeah. Thanks. I'm glad that you touched on those things. Cause those are some of the things that were in my mind too, is uh, listening to the sermon. So we have quite a lot of questions also from previous sermons. Um, Let's do it. I'm going to try to put some time limits on these. You up right. for it? Yeah. Um, how do you feel about one minute? 
Okay, let's try it. All right, one minute for this question is, this is from the November 14th sermon, looking at Ezekiel chapter 18. They say, how should we understand the Exodus 20 passage regarding God blessing or punishing future generations in light of the Ezekiel passage that we read in church today? Yeah, I think one of the things I recognize is that those are, those, they're both true at the same time. So, um, so one way to think about it is this. So there, I am going to do certain acts. And when I do cert- those certain acts, ultimately, I'm going to be judged by God, either temporally in this life or everlastingly in the next. So in w- the way the Bible lays out judgment is that judgment in the, warning. in the end, <laughs> the judgment in the end is personal. When God judges people in the final judgment, it's personal. What that means is, is that God isn't going to judge any nations in the end because there's no such entity as that. And so nations, in fact, one of the founding fathers, I think it was George Mason said, God must judge nations in the present because they're not going to be in the final judgment to be judged. Only individuals will be. And so what God says in Exodus 20 is that if as a nation you behave this way, you're going to get judged as a nation. And in um, chapter 18, he said, before me, each person is an individual, right? And then in some ways, God has to work out that providence. Like, is God going to judge America if it's wicked enough, even if I'm good? Yes. And well, in some ways that judgment come home to roost at my house. Yes. Does that mean God can't bless me in this life temporarily if he chooses to, if I do his will? No, he still can. And so he has to work out the dynamics of that. But in the end, when I'm judged personally, um, Ezekiel 18 is what will happen. I will be judged by that as a person. I won't be condemned because of my father or because of my children. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And yet nations hold together socially and have a shared moral fabric and spirit. And God also has to judge, guide and direct and discipline them as though they're kind of like a pseudo individual. And he does so. And both of those are true at the same time, especially when the nation is God's covenant people and speaks for God as a unit in the planet. That was two minutes. So it could be worse. I felt like people got their money's worth. (laughs) (laughs) It was a fast minute and it was a good question and an important one. Yeah. Um, A few of the questions from the January, sorry, November 7th sermon, we were talking about shame a lot. Um, There are a lot of questions about shame and this is also a topic that um, we have discussed sort of from different angles in the past. Um, Listeners can find... I tried to find the episode number, but I couldn't find it before recording. But there's an episode where you and Jill and I talked about shame and Mm -hmm. honor and things like that. Um, And I think... This is your your 30-second warning for asking the question. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your eyes... Keep... keep, Stay posted for future content on shame. But we'll go through these questions. So first question, does shame come from God or from the enemy? Is it not black and white? Yeah. So in this, in, in that sermon and in, in, we're working on this language a little bit, but um, if it depends on what it is, right, there is some shame that is from God and it's always productive. And it's what's called in second Corinthians, godly sorrow. That is when you do something that deserves moral approbation, like it was really wrong, then there's a certain shame that's actually the right um, emotional experience. And it's supposed to lead you to repentance so that that can lead you to restoration, both with God and others. So it's, now there's a, there is what's called worldly sorrow in Second Corinthians, which is always destructive, which leads you to self hatred and self condemnation, and leads you away from other people, and leads you to believe that other people hate you and don't want the relationship to be restored, right? And that is of the devil. 
that is its worldly sorrow. It's part of all that exists. It stands against God and doesn't acknowledge him. And so there is a kind of, there is a kind of sorrow that is the kind of shame that is from the enemy. There's also, a, there's also a kind of shame and a, a kind of productive and negative shame that comes from you. So if you have in your mind, because of your experiences and so on, pre-programming in you that is self-hating, then you'll often see things in God's word that will affirm that, right? You'll, you'll like misinterpret it to affirm the self-hatred. And even when God is trying to create productive sorrow, your mind will short circuit that and use it as another reason to hate yourself, to engage in self-hatred. That self-hatred and self-contempt is, quote, of the devil in that it's not from God, but it's really a wound in you that needs healing. So if it was from the devil, you need to rebuke it. I don't need to listen to this. If it's coming from a place that's in your heart that's hurt, what it needs is healing, right? Which has is a different remedy, right? But also you have a conscience. Sometimes your own conscience will reproach you and the Holy Spirit may be working through that. And that, that's to prove godly sorrow. It's to say, I shouldn't do this either. I need to do something different. I need to create restitution. I need to apologize or I need to repent or all of those things together. That's still meant to be productive. Does that make sense? And so when, when shame is productive, so, so I think that in first Corinthians seven, second Corinthians seven, second Corinthians seven, right? I think that the distinguisher is whether or not the shame is spiritually productive. Can you use the shame in a spiritually productive way? If you can use the shame in a spiritually productive way, then I think you should act as though it's from your conscience and from the spirit. And if you cannot use it in a spiritually productive way, then I think that you should turn from it as though it's worldly sorrow. Great. Thanks. Uh, Next question. About the same sermon, what I find most disturbing in this chapter of Ezekiel is that God describes an infant who grows into a prepubescent teen and describes this teen in a sexual manner and then describes this same entity as his wife. It feels like God is sexualizing a child. What am I missing here? Okay, so the passage I think that they're talking about is... um, So, uh, verse 6, Then I passed by and saw you kicking in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live, right? And it says, I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. Later I passed by and looked and saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Right. And then he says, I bathed you and washed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you in embroidered dresses and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. Now it's possible to read that not super carefully. And because, because the bathing comes after the affirmation of a covenant of marriage and nobody can, you can't really imagine a baby not being washed of its blood and whatever, when it's a baby. So like you could, you could read that and, th- and think wrongly, like it's still a, Child, like a still child is still a baby but what what is happening here is is that you're it's you're fast forwarding to the woman's adulthood so you're going from a baby he spoke that she should live but he doesn't clean her up and prepare her for his a relationship with her he just speaks life so she doesn't die and then he plants her that is he makes provision for her to grow and develop right and she's like this beautiful flower of the field but she's still not yet prepared for being presented as a bride, right? And it says that she sexually forms. That's the assumption that her, when it says that her, your breasts were formed and your hair grew, it's like she became a woman that is a grown, sexually mature woman. And it says that she was old enough for love. That is, she got to the age where she was developmentally, it was appropriate to make an ovation of love to her. So there's there's nothing prepubescently pedophilic here at all. Um, 
So that, I think that's just, uh, the person just kind of like, just didn't hear it right or kind of misread it or w- wasn't paying close enough attention to the details there. Um, but he literally says in verse eight, later I passed by and when I looked and saw that you were old enough for love, that is a pro it's a pro she's of appropriate marriageable age. Then he spreads a corner of his garment over her and, and pursues her as a wife. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, next question. If someone is responding to shame with self-hatred, how do they get to the proper response instead of self-pity? If they aren't Christian, what's the best way to help them? So Jill and I actually had an email correspondence over this because she felt I was writing, I was trying to write an article for gospel coalition about this. And she felt like I didn't hit the gospel hard enough. She's like, she's like, Nick, there's no other way here than for people to pursue an emotional connection with God's justification that God has, God has pity. So like the the average line here for like a Brene Brown figure who I like Brene Brown. Okay. So I'm, I, I mean, I pick her just because she's popular. I'm not trying to beat up on her because I think that she's really trying to help people. And I think that self-hatred and that kind of anxiety and, um, and shame is epidemic. I agree with her about that. And I think her from a secular perspective, the treatments that she offers are, are science-based and I think are generally helpful in the broader sense. However, because she's irreligious in her approach, she does not avail herself and other people who listen to her of the resources that God has given in the gospel, which is that when we turn ours, because, because the, the, what we're supposed to do when we have self-hatred is instead of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm terrible is to say, I did something that was, that I don't want to, I don't want to be that person. And then we're supposed to show compassion on ourselves to see like, where, where is this coming from? Why did we do that? Like what things affected us and have compassion on ourselves that like, look, we're not perfect. Right. Um, the problem is, is that what she loses in that discussion is the discussion of, uh, of the dignity of me as a moral person, having the strength in the image of God to be somebody. And also like it takes away the moral gravity of the thing that I did, which might be really awful. Right. So if I did something bad, I might not quote be a bad person. That might not be fundamentally defining to my whole character, but I did something that was morally evil. And so I, it's not enough for me to say, well, I don't want to be that person. Cause if I did that to you and I just go, well, I don't want to be that person. I haven't repented. I haven't apologized to you. I haven't like stepped into our relationship, right? There's a certain amount of shame of dishonor that's mm-hmm. existed in between us that I need to overcome. So one of the things Jill said is you, like, you have to point, we have to point these people to the justification of God. That the first person who has compassion on the self-hating person is God. Mm-hmm. God has compassion on you. And see, that's really important, especially for a religious person who's experiencing this kind of self-hatred to say, my view of God is wrong because when I'm hating myself, I imagine God's displeasure over me. He's looking at me with this frown, like, yeah, I guess I'll save you, but I'm so disappointed in you. And I'm just going to tell you, that's the picture of God that my nervous system creates constantly Mm -hmm. in my own life Mm -hmm. is because I didn't feel like, like I was a, I was a really difficult child. I wasn't like a really overly wicked child, but I was a mischievous child, you know, and I was just always making things hard for my parents in ways I did. I didn't even really understand. And I was, I was difficult to be a parent too. (laughs) And so because of that, I think my parents really were struggling with disappointment pretty constantly in my upbringing. And I just felt like they just didn't delight in me. Like it wasn't like I, the, the expression on their face towards me was very rarely a smile, mm-hmm. you know, and I kind of deserved it. And yet, man, I think it would have changed my life if they could have found that somehow, mm-hmm. you know, and I think my kids would say that about me, sadly. Mm-hmm. And so um, when that happens, what I see like nat- what, what, what that wound inside of me creates is a false vision of God in my mind based on things I know about God, 
but it takes everything God has negatively said ever in the scriptures to correct people. It creates a facial expression towards me in my mental imagination and it points God's like disfavoring face towards me. And I go, see, I deserve to hate myself because God, God saves me because he's like this really good person, but he wishes he didn't have to. Right. And he's so disappointed in me and I deserve to hate myself. And maybe if I hate myself enough, his, he will know he doesn't have to frown at me and maybe he would smile. Yeah. Right. Maybe he'd be like, Oh, well don't take it too far. You're not like, right. I still love you. It's okay. You know? Yeah. But man, I'm disappointed. Right. Well, I think what that leads to is an increasing amount of self, self-hatred in me and what Jay Bujasevsky calls, um, the, the avenue of self-atonement. Where instead of letting Jesus atone for me, I'm going to find ways to atone for myself. The main way I'm going to atone for myself is by hating myself. And then for some people to act out that self-hatred in my life. Right. So, um, so I feel so terrible. I'm going to either do something self-destructive that makes me feel better, like drink or do drugs or whatever like that. Or I'm going to do something that literally I know is going to hurt me. And I do it because I deserve to be hurt, right? In ways that I don't, t- I'm not totally thinking clearly about. So I think that one, one thing Jill said is, and it's Jill is somebody who suffered with a lot of this personal shame because of abandonment issues in her life. And she's like, you have to start with that view of God is wrong. God, Jesus scorned the shame of the cross because of his delight over you. And he has compassion for you. The look on his face when you hate yourself is not disgust it's compassion he hates that you feel that way that's not his intention he died on the cross a bloody horrific death so that you would know he doesn't feel that way about you and it is in some ways to crucify god all over again it's to it's to utterly miss the point of the cross to think that his frown is what's over you jesus didn't go to the cross so that he could frown over you right and you have to get that like so lodged in your mind that you can really start to have compassion on yourself and know that God has justified you. And if God is for you, who can be against you and not even you? And you have to accept his view about you. And you have to start to give yourself compassion, which is what Brene Brown says you have to do from a secular perspective. You have to have compassion on yourself. But the doctrine of justification and, and the doctrine of justification as a emotional thing that comes home to you has an, a, an effect of enabling you emotionally to both take your acts morally seriously, which you must, and have compassion on yourself because God does. And you can bring that together because of his death on the cross. He takes it morally seriously and he has compassion on you. Mm-hmm. If you if you do what Brene, Brene Brown says without Jesus, by giving yourself compassion, you're tempting yourself to take the thing you did less morally seriously because you don't want to be a villain. You're not a villain if you have compassion on yourself. Well, I'm not a villain, right? Well, no, you are the villain too though, right? As, as Jill and I often say, like we're both victims and perpetrators, and if in order to comfort yourself as a victim, you have to pretend you're not a perpetrator, you're telling a lie. And the problem is, is your subconscious mind doesn't believe that lie. It knows it's false because your guilt is a visceral thing that it knows exists. So part of the issue here is, is that if you try to engage with your semi-conscious emotional self in ways that it knows are false, it's a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. And what you're going to end up doing is moving back into the realm of the Furies. That is the way you take revenge upon yourself by conscience because you can't get rid of your human conscience. And so you'll begin to self-atone and that self-atonement you, is going to bring self-hatred right back because it's one of the most painful things you can do to yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think understanding the, the work of the cross is fundamental. If a person can't bring themselves to believe that, I would say, okay, I'm going to behave like Jesus, even though you don't believe in him. And in this, in this relationship, I'm going to say to you, what you did is morally serious, but you still are the object of compassion. Mm-hmm. You're the object of my compassion as your friend. And you can be the object of your own compassion, even while taking yourself morally seriously. I think you, you can create 
mentally the act of God, because I think you bear God's image. I think you're, I think you have a capacity to do it, but without the resources of the gospel, I don't think you could bring the peace of God to your conscience. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you're more likely to harm yourself morally while saving yourself psychologically in a way that is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So, um, and all of this, we're talking about situations in which you have, you bear the shame over something for which you are culpable. What about cases right. in which you bear the shame for something that someone else has done? For example, if you've been victim yeah. of some type of assault or if you've been abandoned and you carry shame for this, how does atonement, how does justification speak to that type of shame? Yeah. So I think that, I think that it's the opposite then. I think then you see the true face of the fury of God to the cross that in the cross, because the cross was capable of saving the soul of the perpetrator of that injustice against you, the cross is a demonstration of the, f the moral seriousness and the fury of God over your mistreatment and that God himself bore in himself on the tree, the fury deserved over how you were hurt. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so God, God, the, the look on God's face when you tell him what's been done to you is fury. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like I'll do this in pastoral conflict. Like, somebody tell me this is what happened and I'll look at them in the face. Sometimes I'll like, take their hands and I'll say that should have never happened. Mm -hmm. That was horrible. It was wicked. You didn't deserve it. That person was responsible for it never to happen to you. And they were the perpetrator of it. This was wrong. It's a curse. It was horrible. It was wicked. It was black. Right. And like they they start crying. They mm -hmm. just start just they come apart usually. And, um, and like, I, like I've actually called it, I'm sure I'm, I don't know what they call it in psychological field, but I, sometimes I call it anger therapy. Like I embody the anger that I think God would want to show and that they want to show. And that the person who did the perpetrating of the wrong to them should have felt over themselves and to like validate something in them that has never been validated properly. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that I'm just acting out what's theologically true mm -hmm. that they have to then believe and possess by faith and carry around with them. Right. Does that make sense? So, so I would just, it would be the reverse. So I think that the cross holds resources for, for everybody right. because it's both for perpetrators and victims. Right. And what it sounds like to me is in both cases, you have to recognize the wrong that's been done mm -hmm. and that someone bears the guilt for that, whether it's you or someone else, yeah. and then look to what the cross says about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, but I've, the only way that can work is mm -hmm. if you, as the victim, recognize that you've been a perpetrator of other crimes. Right. And those are all morally serious. Otherwise, the thing that was done to you isn't morally serious. Mm -hmm. If what you do wrong is just some is not who you want to be, and you should have self compassion on it mm -hmm. and give yourself a break. But then, well, then that's the advice you have to give the person who perpetrated whatever thing that's harmed you as mm -hmm. well. And that's not what you really think. You think you were hurt, you were harmed, you were misused, you were mistreated. And that's true, mm -hmm. right? But it's only true if you recognize that you're a perpetrator also. And so you need both the freedom of the cross of Christ dying for your sins because you're a perpetrator so that you can see that in the cross, God takes infinitely morally seriously what's been done against you and has fury over the way you've been harmed. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard for people to accept. Yeah. So when should we um, be expecting your book on the topic? <laughs> yeah, I wish it worked like that. There's, there's no money in books. And so I can't support my family by writing them. And so I can't get the time to write them, but I sure would love to same thing. I would, I'd like to do a PhD as well, but I can't feed my family whilst doing so. Yeah. Well, 
kids can, they're almost old enough to support themselves now. So, and I don't say that because I don't love pastoring. I do love pastoring, (laughs) but I want to, what I, the thing I have a passion about to supply for people as a pastor is clarity in the areas of confusion in their Mm -hmm. lives. That's like the thing I have the biggest passion for. And so that is the heart of a Christian scholar is to say, okay, where are people confused Mm -hmm. and how can I give them something that's clarifying? So that's really my temperament. And I I fear the church sometimes suffers under it. (laughs) Next question is if self-hatred is not shame, then why does Job say, quote, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The question notes, some translations replace despise with hate. Doesn't self-hatred lead to repentance in some way? Yeah. I would just refer to an earlier answer. Like you, you have to read and understand first Corinthians six and seven. If you can understand that distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow and how they operate for just one leads to death and the other leads to life and reconciliation, and then learning to discern distinguishing between the kind of shame and self-hatred that is righteous and that leads you to do something about it, to turn to God for mercy or to turn to others to restore the relationship or make restitution, then it is, it is productive and it's spiritual and it gives life. And if, if it's the kind that leads you away from those things into self-destruction, into self-punishment and so on, into death, then it's, it's the other kind. And you have, it's so fundamental to distinguish between the two because either you'll throw off shame entirely and become an antinomian and like become morally unserious, right? And therefore you'll become a narcissist or you'll be a self-hater and you'll destroy yourself with anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And so you've got you've to throw those off and understand the difference between those two. Because as a morally serious being, as a mature human being, you have to receive shame in certain situations because you've done something shameful. And then other times you have to realize it's the wrong emotion. Um, the next person asks you to sort of re-explain the difference between what they describe as acceptable hypocrisy and unacceptable hypocrisy. Oh man, I don't remember my original argument there. Honestly, to be honest, I I don't either. So I can't help you. Yeah. I mean, I I think that it's simply to say this is that none of us are perfect, perfectly consistent. Uh, There's, uh, there's a popular psychologist now named Jordan Peterson, who everybody wants to be a Christian and he's just sort of like, not really. And people keep asking him like, don't you believe in God or do you believe in God? And his answer is always, I don't think so because I don't know what you mean by believe. And I don't know what you mean by God, but if you, if I believe there's a benevolent intelligence that wants me to do what I know is good. And then I ask myself, do I always in every situation do exactly what I know to be good? The answer is no. I'm trying to conform my life ever more to that. But so like, he's basically describing a secularistic sanctification (laughs) and Mm -hmm. faith. And what he's saying is, is that if my, but what he's also saying is if my faith isn't perfect, I don't believe. And I think that the Bible opens up a huge area for ignorance and infirmity, weakness and a lack of perfect knowledge. And because we have a lack of perfect knowledge and because we are weak, I believe we behave as hypocrites all the time, right? Um, some, and sometimes willfully, like we know we're being inconsistent. I spent like a year of my life like this. It was, I was really miserable, but I knew I was being utterly inconsistent. And I think God is drawing us away from that. But I think God loves, like, well, I think one of the reasons I was miserable for that year was because God was hanging with me Hmm. and he was trying to help me grow out of it. I think that there is a certain amount of acceptable hypocrisy where God will count your faith as faith, even though you are very inconsistent and you even, and you may even know it. And then I would also say there is a kind of cynical hypocrisy that isn't faith and cannot save and stands in the way of saving and is a path of perdition. 
All right. Lastly, this is a question that is actually was actually sent in regarding one of our previous podcast episodes, episode 2882, uh, in which the topic of the death penalty came up. Mm-hmm. And the person um, thought that it would be important for us to go back and review some cultural context regarding that. Yeah, some, because she said very, he or she said very nicely, because Nick's answer stinks. There's <laughs> a subtext here. Um, wanting to hear you address a little bit more issues of the justice system being in not being infallible and the possibility of wrongful conviction, as well as um, how black men and their families often bear the weight of the death penalty policy disproportionately. And I know you had just a few other comments you wanted to make about that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, essentially what this person said is if you're in, if you think the death death penalty is morally possible, like it, like that this, that the state or a right authority has the right to execute the death penalty, which I think is true biblically. What what do you do when there's good reason to believe that the system is not trustable, right? So that either people are being wrongly convicted or that a certain group is disproportionately bearing the weight wrongly or something like that. And so I, I, I think what I want to say this is just like, I stipulate all of these things. This, this person is probably correct. Okay, so um, now, if, if, it is, if a penalty is just, one, okay, one of the things you have to say is like, what is your minimum criteria for the the justice system quote working right or what some people say is the the, pen, the penal system or the penalty system working because it's the system can't produce justice in many cases so for example if a young man kills another young man he's and he's black and and he gets convicted and there's another white young man who kills another man and isn't convicted is it unjust for that young black man to receive the death penalty right and i would argue no it's unjust that the other white man didn't so that that's not really an argument against the death penalty for the young black man. Does that make sense? Um, now, to the extent to which young black men aren't getting good representation and they may be wrongly convicted, that is, they actually didn't kill someone and instead they did, did get the death penalty, then that that is a mitigating factor. And in some cases, in some states, you do see this in the legal system bearing out that where we're finding that there is evidence of racism or just a, like I heard two Republican white um, lawyers talking about this that just like we we have a two-tiered legal system in this country for people who have money and people who don't it's not the black people versus white people it's people who have money and people who don't if you are black and you are oj simpson you still get it's clear you killed your wife you still get off right and if you are white and you don't have any money uh, you're going to jail or getting the death penalty so it's it's not but but disproportionately white people have more money than black people right so it is a white black thing because of the money thing and so there's discussion in this country about how to deal with some of these questions. And some of them are really sadly politicized, like um, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying bail reform is a big, th- important thing. And she said it literally the day after the guy who got out on bail for $1,000 drove an SUV through a street of people, killing children. To which point I want to be like, uh, because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I am not well aligned with politically, is David French and Sarah Isger, these Republican lawyers, uh, said the same thing two days earlier on their podcast. They were like, no, that's a problem throughout America that like bails are set at 50, 60, $70,000 and young black people are spending like enough time in prison before they even really go to trial that it's like they're already guilty and that's morally wrong. And there are a lot of nonviolent offenders that's true of like, that's a real issue. And like, you've got white Republicans that are totally on board for that, right? 
but like if you put it out in the press like after this guy kills a bunch of people you want bail reform and the guy got off on a thousand bucks that's insane right so like I, I do think that there are, there's a lot of agreement. If you can get some of this crazy talk out of the way, there's actually like bipartisan agreement about how to make the justice system more just. Some of that may be that some convictional contexts are not trustworthy enough for the death penalty to be the case. I just really have my doubts that that's really widespread in America right now because the death penalty, it's so hard to execute a death penalty in America. So I have a, I have a feeling that the issues are much more in disproportionate levels of conviction among the guilty that like people who are getting, but there, but there have been cases like a couple in Chicago where it was clear later on that DNA evidence exculpated somebody who was on death row. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't think that kind of evidence should be held back. I think we should do whatever we can. Um, so I do think that gets iffy. And I do think that there's a, that like quote, a history of racism in, at least in certain areas relative to convictions of certain people. I stipulate that that's all true. That's I mean, I don't say everything that anybody's ever said is true, but those considerations are true. And in some cases they really do obtain. Mm -hmm. So this person is right. And I would be on their side mm -hmm. and I'm for a lot of the reforms they should say that doesn't change the, the philosophical ethical position that when somebody takes the life of another image bearer, it can be just for the states to take their life in return. Hmm. That's related to one of the questions that she includes here, which is, should we support a death or should we give countries the power to make decisions on who is worthy of death? Yeah, I think that that is word that worded in a way that kind of poisons the well, right? Okay. So um, there are certain like structural ideas as to where, when somebody forfeits their life in scripture. And so somebody has to adjudicate that, right? If it's not a legal system, then what is it? It's, it goes back to the great, the old Anglo-Saxon idea. Um, do we want to live under the rule of law or the rule of men? Men are arbitrary. Laws are supposed to be objective. And so a, a, a legal system is a terrible, but the best possible way. It's kind of like um, when Winston, Winston, Chester, no, uh, Winston Churchill said, um, uh, dem democracy is a terrible form of government, except for all the others, right? Living under laws is a terrible way to live. I mean, we know that from the Bible, right? Like, Jesus died to free us from the law. The law isn't actually a good way to live. Living by the spirit in the spirit of life is the best way to live, right? There will be no laws in heaven. We don't, we won't need them. But given the brokenness of the world and that we live under the curse and that we live by the flesh and all of that, the law is like democracy. It's the best way we can live. Mm -hmm. And so I'm for living under law and laws can only be adjudicated by certain administrational authorities mm -hmm. that we call states. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I just don't, I don't know that that makes much sense if it, if it's not the state then there's nobody, right? It's either a, like a chief of an organized crime group or something that decides for a certain subgroup of people or a tribe. So you either have like regional warlords or you have vigilantes. So if your three options are vigilantes, regional warlords or organized crime heads or some kind of state adjudication under law, I mean, I would go for the third myself, even though that one can, can go terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm still for that one. And it's also the one the Bible affirms. That rightful institute authorities among men are the best shot we've got. So I don't want to drag this out longer, but I don't want to neglect one other, a couple Listen, other. if people are with us this long, they're not going to get upset. <laughs> we go five more minutes. A couple other aspects of this question that I don't want to neglect. Yeah. One, um, she asks about the death penalty in scripture and wondering, is that more of a practical thing in that we don't want murderers running around in our society? Or in, so could we equate life in prison as suitable substitute in our context today for the death penalty? I mean, not on the basis of the words of Genesis 9, 
I mean, what Genesis 9 says is that if you if you take the life of an image bearer, your life is to be taken. It's an explicit commandment for death. Now, can we can we impose that logic and say, but here's what God was really thinking. And that's changed now. Like you get this with like sexual theology, right? That like the reason why premarital sex was wrong was because of STDs and pregnancy, but we have penicillin and we have condoms now. And so like we can, we can inhibit those two things. So can't we just have sex with whoever we want? Right. I don't know. Like with sexuality, I think the answer is no, because there's lots of places in scripture that explicitly say that the reasons are broader than that. But in terms of this, we don't know. It seems to be that the offense of taking an image bearer's life means that your life is to be forfeit. That's what it seems to say. And so I tend to think that that's correct. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't, I don't think, and there's also, there's also the possibility that the, that prisons are not a superior concept. Mm-hmm. The idea that people are imprisoned to be idle for extremely long periods of time at other people's expense seems to me to be a ridiculous concept. I don't, I don't under, I don't understand why the concept of prisons is better than the concept of punishments. Mm-hmm. It seems crazy to me. And so I just, I don't accept the concept of prison generally. I mean, I accept it because it's a fact of my life that I live in this, this society, but it seems to me that like you could just adjudicate a punishment that the, was at the other person's cost, which is what, most people did in human society. The idea of maintaining penitentiaries and like places to house people to live at other people's expenses for like extremely long periods of time was just something that was just unacceptable. I think people, as they grew in wealth and moral consciousness in the modern world, saw the regimes of hanging large numbers of people, for example, in Wesley's England, and they were like, this is not okay. But they were just like, but then they had like debtors prisons and stuff like that. And they're like, well, we'll just imprison more people. Like maybe that's better. And I don't know that it was like a real deliberative process of like, well, no, maybe somebody should have to work off their, a debt or something, or maybe, I don't know, but like, and I'm not saying like we should like choose the Islamic system where if you steal, we just cut a hand off either. I, mm-hmm. I just think this is the problem of sin. There is no way to create justice. All right. So, I mean, to like simplify the question, it's like, is, is it too great of a risk that we might execute someone wrongfully that the alternative would be that we keep them in prison for life in case we later discover that we were wrong and then we can let them out. Is that, mm-hmm. is that greater justice? Or, I don't know. <laughs> um, because you also might get situations in which people are more willing to convict. So like if I was sitting on a jury and you're like, look, if you say this guy's guilty, he's going to die. Or if you say this guy's guilty, he's going to go to prison. I don't, I think I might be more willing to convict if he's going to prison than if I'm going to have his blood on my hands. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it may be that more people are found guilty. I don't know. Like there, there may be some things that we don't, but but like generally speaking, I would say maybe, I mean, maybe if we have people in prison so that maybe later we could find out that they were innocent, that'd be great. I mean, if, if, if we were able to find out that somebody was innocent, I'd prefer for them to be alive in a jail rather than dead. Yes. But is, is that worth a regime of carrying hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people in a prison system? I mean, obviously, it's not that many people are going to be on death row or, or living life in prisons because of murder, per se. But I don't, I don't know if that's different. I just, I think, so, you, you know, I'm a contrarian by nature. So my nature is to say, okay, so that you think the death penalty is stupid. Maybe prisons are stupid. Right. That, like, that's just my nature to be like, maybe your argument proves too much. Maybe the problem's bigger than you think. Maybe the alternative is actually worse than you thought it was. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think being skeptical of the death penalty is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that we have had injustices in this country where we've convicted people that shouldn't have been, I think that that's a perfectly reasonable statement. I think, I think empirically true in certain cases is it as widespread as people think, is it, I don't know, but, um, but the fact is, as long as you have a justice system, some innocent people are going to be convicted. That's going to happen. A justice system governed by fallible humans. Yes. Right. And by imperfect evidence. Absolutely. Yeah. Well. Some yeah. innocent people are going to be convicted and many guilty men will go free. Yeah. On that note, <laughs> do you have any final words to share with our audience? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. God will restore to life all who are killed wrongly. And he will judge them appropriately. There will be ultimate final justice for eternity because of the hand of God in the, the one true and perfect judge, the one true and perfect jury, and the one who is capable of restoring all that has been wrongly taken from men and women. Whether they are executed by the state, thrown in a gulag, wrongfully convicted, um, racialized in their, even, even as a person who commits a crime, but further racialized as a criminal in a way that is worse than they should have otherwise deserved in terms of the penalty and all that God has the capacity to restore sometimes in this life, things that are taken, but ultimately in the one to come. And, and like we said about persecution, what's also true of wrongful imprisonment and unjust actions with a legal system that I don't know if it rarely brings about justice, but it doesn't commonly bring about justice. If you've prepared yourself for persecution and martyrdom, you will be ready when you're misused at the hands of the legal system. Mm. But that should never take away our desire to reform the legal system as best as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. And as Christians to seek just j- justice and in some ways appropriate mercy in the legal system that we have, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So yeah, I would just say to the, to the person, if you're listening who wrote this in, thank you for writing in and telling me that I, gave a completely inadequate answer I, we, we need people like that you like you and i appreciate your your feedback yeah. if anyone else is listening and wants to um point out the inadequacy of any of nick's responses today feel free to write us at podcast at highpointchurch.org yeah. if you have ideas for future episodes or questions about uh sermons please let us know we'll do our best to get to them um more time in a more timely fashion than we got to some of these yeah and we're currently working on more podcast episodes that are not AMA, right. that are focused on engaging and equipping you as um, somebody who is um, being Jesus in, the, in this world. Right. So and, especially write us if you have an idea for other types of content. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.